All right, well, good morning to everybody. So glad that you're here. And for those of us joining online, welcome to church. We're thrilled that you're a part of this morning's worship service also. You can open up your Bibles to the book of Acts. Our new series is called Let's Go Change the World. We just started it last Sunday. And so if you missed the first sermon, you can catch that. Uh, it's an overview of the book last week, so make sure that you listen to that because there's some essential ingredients to this book that you're going to want uh, to find. So in Acts chapter 1 today will be uh, in verse 12. As you in your bulletin fill out that how to walk and how to work with Christ form, you can actually drop that in the box on the back on your way out. We really want to get you engaged. And also we have uh, our guest worship leader here, Todd um, we're thrilled that he's here because he's very special. Not only is he a great worship leader, but he also runs a search firm. And we hired his search firm to find our next worship leader for us. So it's really great that he knows the worship world, and he's the one working on finding our next worship leader. So keep that in prayer, and make sure you find Todd and thank him for being here this morning. All right, into God's Word we go. You know what it feels like to get ready for things, to prepare to pack, to go through your list. And then you ask the question, are we ready? Sometimes it's when you're on the road and it's too late because you forgot something. Are we ready is the title of the sermon today. The church is about to be born. The believers are gathering in Jerusalem. And the question is, are we ready? Sometimes kids surprise us don't they? And they tell us things they need last minute. You realize they're not ready for something. When my daughter Ellie was in eighth grade, she was in some sports, and she told us that she had a sports thing, and so Lauren and I, well, what time do we need to be? Okay, and we walk through the door into the gymnasium, and guess what? All of the eighth graders are standing out on the floor with their parents, with flowers. Everyone's dressed really nice because it's eighth grader night. Now, did we know that? No, we did not. So Ellie's standing on the floor like this, and so Lauren and I like go out on the floor in front of everyone wearing who knows what. We don't have a gift for our eighth grader. We weren't ready. And the whole school saw it. It was really unpleasant to not be ready for eighth grade night. Then we had a little family chat right there on the floor. Why didn't you tell us about eighth grade? <laughs> While smiling. Come on, parents. You've been there before. You realize a little too late you're not ready for the game or the vacation or the whatever. Well, are we ready? God has been preparing the world for this moment in Bible history for thousands of years and he's getting them ready for what's about to happen in chapter 2 and I got to tell you next week the sermon is going to be called the greatest explosion in human history oh is it going to be epic but we're not there yet we're in the preparation phase we're in the anticipation phase and listen you need to know how to walk by faith in the anticipation stage when you're waiting because if you don't get that right then it'll be completely chaotic when it's go time let's pray and then we'll get into acts one together father thank you for this one last deep breath in acts one before your holy spirit is about to be poured out on the world like never before in acts chapter two 
but not yet. And I wonder if there are people here this morning who are waiting, waiting for you to do something, waiting for you to show up, waiting for you to provide, waiting for you to give an answer. They're waiting. They're waiting. You're getting them ready for something. I pray that you would help us to know how to be faithful during a season of anticipation. We pray that you would show us in your word how the early church got ready for what you're about to do. And we pray that we would do the same in your name. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Jesus just ascended to heaven. Good news, he's on the throne. Bad news, he's not on earth anymore. Now what? It says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which was near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room, maybe it's the same room where they had the Last Supper, where they were staying. Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. And these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Hey, are we ready? The first thing that we see here modeled for us, you can write this down if you're taking notes, I hope you are, patiently gather in prayer. We must patiently gather in prayer. As we're getting ready for what God has next for us in life, in faith, in family, in church, uh, we must patiently gather in prayer. It says here that they were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. The apostles were there, the early followers were there, uh, the women were there, Jesus' family was there, his, his mother and his brothers. It says about 120 people were, were kind of gathered here in the context uh, in verse 15. So it was a decent size group that was gathering together in prayer. And they're modeling for us how the mission began. Now they were given their marching orders in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Here's a picture of kind of a known world back then, the Roman Empire. And I, I showed this last week in the introduction. This is their assignment. Gulp. Everybody say gulp. Gulp. We are supposed to reach that and right in the middle, little to the left, you can see the yellow arrow that I drew. They're in this tiny little nation. Surround, they're, they're conquered by Rome. And they are there on the map. You are here. And they're supposed to go everywhere and preach the gospel. Wow. So they are praying because they don't feel ready. Imagine being in that prayer meeting. Just put yourself in that room. You look around and you see Peter. You see Doubting Thomas. You see Simon the Zealot. You see Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his, his brothers are now on board. The world had never heard of a church, ever. And they were about to go and make disciples of all nations. Imagine being in that prayer room. Such a tiny percentage of people on earth had heard the name Jesus. I mean, if they traveled outside of the walls of Israel and said, have you heard of Jesus? Everyone would say no. Everyone would say no, 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 no. Most people on earth today have heard of Jesus in the civilized realm. At least they know about him. Not back then. Boy, did they need to pray patiently in prayer. 
We have four pillars here as a church. We'll put them up on the screen. One of our four pillars is fervent prayer. That pillar falls over all the time. And so as a church, we always have to, everybody's job is to go and pick the prayer pillar up and say it's time to pray. Bold preaching, passionate worship, courageous evangelism, yes, but prayer is where it all begins. So we have to patiently gather in prayer, and these early believers modeled this for us. Jot this down, there are some questions here. Are, are you waiting well? They're waiting, and, and you're waiting for something. Are you waiting well? You see, Jesus stayed 40 days after he rose from the grave. He stayed on earth 40 days, just preparing people, teaching, talking about things before he ascended. And they, they had to wait 40 days. He's given them stuff, but it's not time to go yet. Now they're waiting another 10 days before the Feast of Pentecost. Yeah, they're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting. Not yet. Maybe you're there right now. Are you waiting, and are you waiting well? What are you waiting for God to do? How are you feeling about God saying not yet? Are you resenting that it hasn't happened yet? When you're anticipating something that God's going to do, and here they were anticipating God doing something he had been talking about for thousands of years. Long time coming. Do you wonder why, why hasn't it happened yet? It's a good thing that I'm waiting for. Hey, let me just invite you to embrace and not resent that season of anticipation. Do you know that the world knows the value of anticipation? They can do studies now. They wire you all up, and they find out how you're chemically reacting to things. And do you know what they found based on your adrenaline levels and everything? Anticipating something is actually more rewarding than getting it. Do you know that? Casinos know that. They put a lot of time and energy into generating the anticipation of winning the jackpot. Once you win it, they don't care about that. They want you to get anticipating. They want you to get excited. The world knows this. There's tremendous value, more value in the buildup, the desire, the anticipation than in actually getting that thing. Now listen, spiritually there's a lesson in that. There's tremendous power and potential when you're waiting for God to do something. In fact, <clears throat> could it be that if you, by faith, draw near to God and say, God, I want you to use this season of waiting and anticipation to give me a better relationship with you than I've ever had. Could it be that you're going to grow more in faith before that thing happens than after? Could it actually be that after that thing comes through, you're a little less motivated to pray? Because it's happened. I don't know about you. I, I prayer journal. I write my prayers out. When I'm kind of in a season of chaos and craziness and need, my prayer journal gets full faster. And then when things seem to be going well, and I don't sense my need for God as much, I'm not in there as much. Am I the only one? When you kind of feel like you've got things under control, you're not as motivated. Didn't God make people wait in the Bible? What about Abraham? He had to wait until he was like 100 to have his first child of promise, of promise, Isaac. What about Joseph when he was thrown in jail? God was with him. Uh, what about David? When Saul was on the throne, David was anointed king. Huh? And David had to just wait and wait and wait. 
the waiting was a crucial stage. I don't know if you're waiting for a financial need to be taken care of or a health problem to improve. I don't know what's dragging on in your life. I don't know if there's a broken relationship that you don't know how to fix. But my question for you is this. Are you waiting well? Are you waiting well? That starts when you realize that throughout the Bible, God will intentionally make you wait, sit in a season of anticipation, and it's not wrong that that's happening. There's actually a ton that's good about that. Maybe you're just not harnessing that energy by faith, prayer, praise, to make it maybe one of the sweetest times in your life with God. Are you waiting well? These early believers, they're waiting well. They're patiently gathering in prayer. Jot this down. Are you gathering together? Are you waiting well? And are you gathering together? Are you gathering together? It says here that they were with one accord and they were devoting themselves to prayer. They were with one accord and they were devoting themselves to prayer together with women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So they were gathering together. They weren't alone. Luke uses um, a word here, one accord, that's uh, pretty special. He uses it ten times. It means together, kind of with one heart, one mind, one purpose. Like really together. So not just in the same room, but it means more than that. Isolation is typically bad for the soul, especially during a period of waiting. We need our spiritual family around us. We need spiritual friends by us. We need to be together, and these believers knew that. They were together. So when your life gets hard, when, you're, when your faith gets tough, sometimes you're tempted to kind of pull back and just be alone, to avoid people. That's the wrong move. Um, well, I don't want to talk about it. I want to be around people. I don't, just waiting for this thing. Waiting for things to calm down. That's the wrong move. It's the wrong move you got to press into community and gather together. There's many opportunities here in our church to press in and gather together. Recently, we had a men's prayer breakfast. Usually the first Saturday of the month, we have a men's prayer breakfast. Guys come out, we eat a great breakfast, and then we pray together. And we started kind of a tradition earlier this year where anybody, a new guy who comes, we have him stand up, introduce himself, tell us a little bit about him, and then we just gather around him and we pray for him. We don't even know what he needs. We just put hands on him and we just pray for that guy. It's powerful because he got here. He's pressing in. He wants to be around other people. Are you gathering together? We have women's Bible studies that launched a couple weeks ago. Student ministry, getting our high schoolers and middle schoolers here. Gathering together is crucial. Generally speaking, What I've observed in ministry is more community, more maturity. Are you gathering together? Awana just launched, getting our little kids out here, getting the energy out, getting them in God's word, memorizing verses. Wednesday nights, man, are you gathering together? We will experience more joy together than we will alone, especially when we're waiting. Are you gathering together? You know, Sunday mornings, if you're here, if you're in town, if you're, if you're well, man, be here. Gather together. We must patiently gather in prayer. Hey, are you waiting well? Are you gathering together? The early church, they were together. Think about how risky it was 
to gather together in the early days. The Messiah was just executed after a sham trial. And now you're going to get together. Where are you going? Going to meet with my Christian brethren. What? You're with them? Very risky. Publicly, they would gather together in the temple and house to house. You're, you're with this group of weirdos who believe a dead guy rose from the grave. You're with them. Identifying publicly with Christ was real risky back then. Are you gathering together? Jot this down. And are you praying faithfully? Are you praying faithfully? They're praying. With one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer. So the idea of devoting means they were busy and persistent in it. So they weren't negligent. All right, we're all together. Somebody say a prayer. All right, bless this uh, meeting. Amen. They were devoting. They were in it. They were, as Charles Spurgeon said, throwing their whole souls into it. They were engaged. Not sleepy, not passive, not negligent. They were devoted. Are you praying faithfully? Sometimes Christians are a little intimidated by prayer. Well, I just don't know what to say. Don't overthink it. Prayer is just talking to God. And recognize that prayer is one of the fundamentals of Christian life. So my niece uh, was the first cousin in the family to get her driver's permit several years ago. She was pretty excited. So I was over at her house. She said, I got my permit. And I was like, oh, that's so great. You want to go for a drive? Yes! We got in the van. She got all ready. And then she looked down at the pedals and said, which one's the go one? I said, wait, when did you get your permit? Yesterday. Have you been out yet? No, we're getting out of the car. <laughs> yeah. Mm -mm. You don't know what the go one is? We're not going anywhere together. Your mom's going to take you out and teach you the go one. When you know that, then I'll drive with you. All right. Uh, listen, a lot of Christians don't know which one's the go one. Okay, so I'm just going to spell it out for you. Prayer is the gas. Sin is the brake. Some sins are the parking brake. Okay, it's real. It's, it's that simple. Prayer is the go one. All right. We need to be reminded of that, don't we? Why am I not getting anywhere? Hit the gas. Well, what's the gas? Pray. I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to say. It doesn't matter. Just pour it. All right? And maybe you don't know how to pray. You don't know what to say. Well, I'm embarrassed. I just floor it. Pedal to the metal. Just pray. Just do it. It really is one of the fundamentals. And put the parking brake down first. You gotta let go of the sin that's holding you back. Are you praying faithfully? We had a phase two construction program several years ago, and I visited all the small groups with the folder and the printouts and the pictures, and this is what we're going to do. And one dear saint raised her hand, and she said, Pastor, what's the prayer plan? And I said, um, we don't have one. Thank you for asking that question. We're going to have a prayer plan by Sunday, because I can't believe we didn't spell that out. That question, what's the prayer plan? I never forgot she asked that. And I'll always ask that to myself before we're doing it. Okay, what's the prayer plan? What's the prayer plan? Maybe you have to ask yourself that too. Are you praying faithfully? Let's face it, too often prayer is the last resort instead of the first response. I heard a story once about a kid who after a geography quiz checked 
his study guide, and prayed, Oh Lord, please make the capital of Michigan Detroit. <laughs> Amen. Too late, too late. There are times when you didn't pray, and now you can't, and it's too late. You were going to maybe make it a last resort. I've done that way too often. Prayer is the gas, sin is the break. Are you, are you praying? Are we praying faithfully? We uh, release a prayer calendar in the fall, in the winter, in the spring. Hey, keep this on your dinner table. Keep this in your car. Keep this wherever, and just pray. Let's pray. Let's pray together as a church. I think we've got those in the lobby. So number one, we must patiently gather in prayer as we get ready to be God's witnesses, whatever that means. Number two, jot this down. Here's what the early believers modeled for us. Understand God's plan in God's word. Understand God's plan in God's word. All right, so they're gathering, they're praying. Then it says in verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons, was in all, about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture, that's the Old Testament, had to be fulfilled, listen carefully, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. There's so much in just verse 16, I could preach the whole sermon on this. They were searching the scripture because they were like, what just happened? Our Messiah's dead. Judas defected. They, nobody went to the tomb Easter morning, okay? They thought it was game over. And Jesus had to appear and show them in scripture, right? He's walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and he showed them everything the scripture said about him. So they're in the Bible during this phase of anticipation and readiness, They're in the scriptures. For he, Judas, was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And then there's like a parenthesis here. Luke includes kind of a comment because he has Gentile readers and they might not know exactly what happened. So he's including here what happened with uh, Judas who betrayed Jesus in verse 18. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Remember he got paid those 30 pieces of silver for turning in Christ. It says he acquired a field. Technically, what happened is he got the money, you know, betrayed Jesus, then felt remorse, went back, threw it in the temple, and then the priests were like, well, we can't keep this money because it would be unethical. Wow, way to get back on track morally after killing the Savior of the world. And so they they took the money, all right, well, let's buy a field, turn it into a cemetery. So they bought it, but, you know, Luke is reporting it as if Judas acquired it. Uh, because it was his money and it was his fault that this all happened. So, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And so it also says in the Bible that Judas hung himself. So the combination of these means he hung himself in a way that maybe he wasn't found for a while or whatever. And fell up. <laughs> Human explosion. It's super gross and tragic. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a caldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, now the parenthesis is over, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So he quotes here from Psalm 69, 25, 
and from Psalm 109.8. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out and among us, beginning from the baptism of John, that's John the Baptist, until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. All right, so this is like searching scripture, trying to figure out what happened, and now responding to it. So do you understand God's plan found in God's word? This is what the disciples are modeling for us. So disoriented and confused and destroyed and devastated, and they're in the book, in the scrolls. What does it say? What does it say? What does it say? That should be us in the book. What does it say? What does it say? No matter what you're going through, what you're waiting for, what you're preparing for, what does it say? What does it say? What does it say? You're searching the scripture to see what, what it says. That's how we get ready. Do you understand God's plan in God's word? Psalm 69 was about how God's judgment would fall on the wicked. Psalm 109 also calls for God's judgment and for the wicked individual, who's kind of the key troublemaker, to be replaced. Now, there are other prophecies they could have been and we're looking at as well. Matthew says that Judas fulfilled what was prophesied about him in Jeremiah 32. They're finding these verses about Judas. Jeremiah 32 and Zechariah 11. Jesus himself quoted Psalm 41.10 and said Judas's betrayal was predicted in the Old Testament. Now look, that should blow you away. Everything Judas did, his greed, his, his secrecy, his sneaking away from the disciples to get a bag of money, which led to the every everything, everything was spelled out in detail hundreds of years before it happened. Does that blow you away? If I told you the score of the football game tonight and I was spot on, you'd be like, whoa. What if I told you something that was going to happen in 600 years? The Bible should really blow you away. It was blowing them away. And here's what we learn about it. Jot this down. The Bible is God-breathed. Prophecy is one way we understand that the Bible is a divine book. The Bible is God-breathed. So it says here in verse 16, Brothers, the scripture, that's the Bible, had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke. So the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, divine being, spoke. And we get here a picture into the doctrine of what's called inspiration. Okay, inspiration. Not like the Chicago song, you're the meaning in my life, you're the inspiration. No, 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 no. It's not romantic, okay? The word inspiration means breathed out by God. The, the Bible comes from God's lips. That's the doctrine of inspiration, and it's the Holy Spirit that produces the Scripture. Now, it says here the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas. David, you're going like a thousand years back. David's speaking, blah, 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 about Judas? How does that work? So the author, David, was speaking by God's Spirit about the future. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't do Jedi mind control like, and then David's like, there will come a person named Judas who will betray. Whoa, where was I? How long was I out? That's not it. David's being David. David's living his life in a posture of godliness and humility. The Spirit through him 
in what he's writing is breathing out what God is saying. It's wonderful. It's impossible. It's divine. David couldn't have known anything about Judas apart from God's spirit. So the Bible is therefore God-breathed. God breathing his word through the human authors. This is an important truth because it answers the question, how can I hear from God? How can I hear from God? How can I know? How can I know God's plan? I'm getting ready for something and I need to know what God wants me to do. A lot of people get really confused about how to know God's will. Okay, The Bible is how you hear God's voice. It's God-breathed. Now the world absolutely does not understand or agree with this. Okay, let me share a story with you about a recording artist named Sia. Sia wrote a lot of popular songs that are out there today. She sang some of them too. And she wrote, uh, you know, Rihanna's got a song called Diamonds. It was a giant hit. Sia wrote it. And so Sia was interviewed by Howard Stern. He was asking her where the song came from. How do you, where does a song come from that becomes a giant hit? Listen to what she said. Here is the quote. Howard, are you a religious woman? Sia, uh, I believe in a higher power, and it's called Whatever Dude. And he's a queer surfing Santa that's a bit like my grandpa, so yes. Howard, so God is Whatever Dude, a queer surfing Santa? Sia, yeah, yeah. And he's the, he or she is the one, and she said, no, it's a dude. Weirdly, I'm a feminist, but it's a dude. It turned out to be a dude. Howard, and you believe from this higher power the words of the song Diamonds Came? Yes. All right, so let me get this straight. Sia just has this God called whatever dude, who's this queer surfing Santa, and uh, this is the inspiration for her song Diamonds, that's where it came from. Now here's the thing, that's what people in the world believe, anything they want about God. And if God hasn't revealed himself, if God hasn't spoken, anything goes. You can have your God, I can have my God, and your God might look like a Santa, and my God might look like a this, and it's total chaos. That's why it's so crucial to understand that if you want to know who God is, you have to follow his voice. You can't look into yourself, you can't just make it up as you go along, otherwise you get total anarchy and people believing anything they want, and very confused about how things happen in life. But if you understand the truth of this book, then you'll find out how to know who God is, how to know his plan, because this is his voice. See, you can't say that without completely rejecting this. We can't just make up a God. We can't just decide he is whoever we want him to be. Hey, do you understand who God is as found in his word? You have to believe the Bible is God-breathed in order to know who God is. Jot this down. The Old Testament foreshadowed God's global plan. The Old Testament foreshadowed God's global plan. It foretold what would happen. So we need the word of God to know his plan is unfolding. And in the Old Testament, you see events, people, predictions, revealing the future. And God's plan goes back 4,000 years. Early believers saw not a new plan, not a plan B, not a failed plan when Jesus died and rose again, but this is it. Everything in the Old Testament was strung together to show this is God's plan. This is God. This is his son. The Spirit is revealing it. You don't have to go up and make up your own God. This is it. David, Jeremiah, Zechariah, things in their life paralleled things in Jesus' life. 
pre-enacted what would happen. So listen, you can have confidence that God has a plan. This is it. It's called Jesus. That's the plan. Jot this down. Prophecies authenticated that Jesus is the Messiah. Prophecies authenticated that Jesus is the Messiah. It would take too long for me to dig into all of the prophecies about Judas and Jesus and the crucifixion and the resurrection, but I did that this week in the Psalms, in Jeremiah and Zechariah. But I did put together a summary of what they should have known about what's happening in their days. Here's a chart. This chart shows you basically what all these prophecies were signaling, okay? First of all, the people in the first century were realizing the Old Testament is coming to life. Wait, I heard about this. I heard about this. The 30 pieces of silver, the betrayal, the, the look on the, the pierce. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's happening. There was this understanding that the Old Testament was coming to life. John the Baptist, he was spoken of. The Old Testament is coming to life. And the events ID Jesus as the Messiah. He's the one. And because of what Israel did, they were warned of their doom. These are what the prophecies in the Old Testament were saying. Yet, God's promises will be fulfilled regardless, and God's people will be saved and mobilized. This is the summary of a bunch of prophecies in the Old Testament that these early believers were discovering. The Old Testament is coming to life. Jesus is the Messiah. Israel is doomed. Yet, God's promises are going to be fulfilled, and his people are going to be saved and mobilized. All of those things were happening at the same time. So the prophecies authenticated Jesus as the Messiah. So number one, we must patiently gather in prayer. Are you waiting well? Are, are you gathering together? Are you praying faithfully? They're modeling this for us. Number two, we have to understand God's plan found in God's word. If we don't understand what the Bible is, that it's God-breathed, that it is his plan, that it all points to Jesus, we are going to believe nonsense that insults a holy God. Do you understand God's plan as found in God's word? And then number three, jot this down. We have to invite God to search and reveal and transform our hearts. We patiently gather in prayer. We understand God's plan and God's word. And then we invite God to search and reveal and transform our hearts. So reading on, they're trying to figure out what to do. They realize in Scripture that there were some precedents, and they're figuring out how to apply that to Judas' situation. They decide that they're going to install another apostle. And that will lead to the number 12, which is significant because there were 12 tribes of Israel. This seems like a new launch to God's kingdom program. So they're going to parallel that. So it says in verse 23, and they put forward two guys who had been there from the beginning, witnessed the resurrection. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. So they've got these two guys, and they're like, we don't know which one to pick. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, know you who know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Casting lots is not a normative practice in the New Testament. It's not really repeated in a way where it's like we're supposed to do it, but that's how they did it in this situation to give Jesus the opportunity to lead. But I love what it says here in verse 24. You who know the hearts of all, show which one. They're inviting God to search, reveal, and transform their hearts. That's what we see modeled by this early group. They're welcoming God to work inside of them and among them. So are you doing that too? Are we doing that? God, you know the hearts of all. You know my heart. 
Lord, show me which way. Show me which one. Show me. Are you, are you doing that? Are you inviting God to work in your heart to lead you? Of course, the world will go to this first. Well, what is your heart telling you? Wait a minute. Okay, we didn't start there, did we? We started together in prayer, humbly. Then we went to God's word, okay? What is God's word? Said, now we're at the heart. The world will reverse that. Well, my heart's telling me to do this. Well, that's super sinful. Yeah, but my heart says so. Okay, you're doing it backwards. You've got to start with humble prayer, and then you've got to read God's word, and then you have to say, Lord, lead my heart, Right? This is how we locate ourselves with God right here and right now. And I wonder where you're at with God. Where are you at with God? Ask yourself, where are you at with God's people and prayer? Where are you at with God's word? Where are you located and what is God revealing to you? I love the word here where it talks about you know the hearts of all. Uh, that, that word is cardianostes, uh, compound word, heart know, heart knower. God is everyone's heart knower. Wonderful truth that God knows your heart. Hey, listen, God knows everything about you. He knows your motives, your intentions. He knows all of your sins, your secret thoughts. He knows your heart. Now, that's kind of simultaneously the most terrifying and inspiring thing you could know. He knows it all? Yes. And he still loves me? Yes. Whew. He's the heart knower. And God knows exactly where you are with him. Jesus could see straight through people. He knew exactly where they were. Jesus would frequently say, one of you, one of you is going to betray me. And Judas was right there like. Jesus would just say it. One of you is going to betray me. At one point Judas did say, surely not I. It's so foolish when we don't realize God knows our heart. Right? The Garden of Eden, we were hiding from God. Where are you, Adam? Shh. You can't hide anything from God. And I think the characters in the story here can help you locate yourself. Are you truly numbered among the redeemed community and your actions of gathering together and praying humbly and searching God's word, those are true about your life generally? Or are, are you just going through the motions? Like, where are you with God? Because God knows your heart. You can fool other people, but you can't fool him. So let's ask some questions here. Jot this down. Based on Judas being in this story, I just have to ask you this. Are you lost? Are you lost? Are you in the church? Are you around godly people? But are, are you truly not on board? Are you truly not on board? And I just have to probe a little bit further here and say everyone else around you might think you are. Okay, because none of the disciples... When Jesus was like, one of you is going to betray me. Like, Judas wasn't over there in the corner wearing, like, all black with horns on his head and a pitchfork going, ha, 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 not me. It's not like all the disciples were like, well, we know who's going to do that. Wicked Judas over there. They trusted him. They put him in charge of the money. In fact, he may have been the least likely one. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've been in church a while. You're doing the things. Everyone's convinced. But listen, I have to ask you a very hard question. Do you know in the depths of your heart that you're a fraud? You're a fake? You're not on board? 
This is you. Listen, this is supposed to really terrify you. It kind of also sounds like Judas maybe didn't even see his own peril. Maybe you're even kind of fooling yourself that the going through the motions has been enough. This should really scare you. How would it end for Judas? Uh, He ended up for his life. This is a dire warning for you. He ended up for his life, his whole life, purchased a cemetery, a field of blood, where he died an agonizing bloody death on it and was buried. That's supposed to show you where your life is going to end. It's really horrifying. You acting it out, going through the motions, fooling everyone around you, is going to buy you for your reward a field of blood. And that's your forever. That's your happily ever after. Hey, look, I'm not the one who's going to really go hard and try and guilt you or fear you or anything. But if you've been in church for a while and you've been faking it and you're a fraud and you're not all in, this is your 911 call right now. It's time to really trust Jesus and believe in him and stop being a fraud. I hope you'll take that to heart before it's too late. Are you lost? Nobody would guess. Maybe you're faking it. Maybe church, Jesus, is like a temporary tattoo. You put it on Sunday morning and then you take it off Sunday night. You haven't truly surrendered your life. You're two different people. You don't see your peril, or maybe you do. Hey, it's time to stop the act. It's time to believe. And I got great news for you. Jesus will welcome you with open arms. And so will we. Are you lost? Jot this down. Are you saved? Are you saved? Do you match the description of this unlikely group of people who are listed here? The underdogs, the nothing heroic in some backwater town in the middle of the Roman Empire. Who can be saved? There's hope for you. Peter denied Christ three times. Simon was a zealot. Matthew was a tax collector. I mean, Jesus' mom and brothers were there. His brothers didn't believe in him his whole life. And then Jesus appeared to them. James and, and Judas, or Jude, we think at least got saved. Mary Magdalene, she was possessed by demons. She was like the craziest person they knew. Hey, if the craziest person you know can get saved, maybe you are the craziest person you know. I don't know. If you are the craziest person you know, you can get saved too. This group was not like, whoa, how can I become one of them? This group was like, ah, them? It's supposed to be very disarming. Are you saved? Have you believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the risen Lord? And are you gathering with those you have? There's a place for you. And jot this down. Are you called to a special assignment? Have you surrendered to the work of Christ in such a way that you're willing to go anywhere and do anything and surrender it all for the Lord? The apostles were called to a special once-in-a-salvation-generation assignment, right? And, and Matthias here was set apart for something huge. All the disciples, except maybe John, were going to be martyred. Uh, even John, history, church history kind of records they tried, and then they just, like, you know, put him on an island somewhere. It's going to end very badly for them. Are you called to a special assignment? Is God prompting you, tapping you on the shoulder to surrender to something, pastoral ministry, it could be something big like becoming a missionary or going into church work or something smaller like joining a ministry team or leading something up. God might be tapping you for a special assignment. 
This is what happens when we invite God to search our hearts, reveal our hearts, and transform our hearts. He goes to work and he moves. Wow. Well, this is the last preparation sermon, and next week the greatest explosion in human history is going to happen. And I just want to close out by sharing one last story to inspire you. We as a church are going on a rescue mission. They, as early believers, were going on a rescue mission. And seeing 120 of these cowardly Christians in a room searching scripture, trying to figure it all out, you probably look at that and you're like, this is the plan? This is the plan that's going to change the world? After Jesus came down and did all these miracles, this, this is it? And maybe when you look at yourself or our church or our world, you're like, this is it? This is the plan? How is this going to work? Well, I saw the movie Argo um, in the past, and I just want to close by sharing this story. They were going on a rescue mission. The CIA in in 1979 through 1981, the CIA had a big problem. There were some Americans who had, they were on the run. The embassy had been taken. There were Americans hiding out, and they needed to be rescued. If they were captured, they were probably going to be killed. So the CIA had to come up with a plan to go into Iran and rescue Americans. And the plan was this. We are going to pretend to be a Canadian film crew filming a sci-fi movie called Argo, and we're going to sneak in, and we're going to rescue the Americans. That's the plan. In the movie, here's them presenting the plan. Check it out. There are only bad options. It's about finding the best one. You don't have a better bad idea than this? This is the best bad idea we have, sir. By far. (laughs) I love that moment. This, this is it? 120 cowardly Christians meeting and praying, and th- this is it? This is the idea? It sounds like a bad idea. It's the best bad idea, bad idea we got. Look around. The church here, us here, now this is it? This is the plan? You, maybe you're feeling that way, and that's how they felt. And next week, you're going to see how it truly worked. It's actually a beautiful idea. It's a powerful idea. It worked. The church worked. We're going to be really fired up next week. But for now, are you ready? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these moments in Scripture where it seems as if eternity is holding its breath. The Spirit didn't fall yet. There was a season of preparation, of anticipation, of waiting, of of humbly praying, of searching your word, searching our hearts, their hearts. Lord, I know that many of us feel like we are in that stage right now. We've been waiting. Maybe maybe it feels like we've been waiting for thousands of years for you to do something. And Lord, I just pray that we would not resent that. I pray that we would see the anticipation as an opportunity for consecration to set ourselves apart for the work that you've called us for. Lord, help us to gather together We're so tempted to get alone when we're hurt, when we're angry or confused. Help us to pray humbly. Lord, I pray that you would help us to get low with others, to wait well, totally surrendered. Lord, may we fully align with your word. What nonsense our world believes, what insults our world believes about God. It's because they reject your word. Lord, help us to know who you are, what you demand as found in your word, the Bible. Let us trust it. And Jesus, I pray that you would search our hearts. You are the heart knower. You alone know the hearts of all. And Lord, for any who are here today 
who are not saved, any who are watching online who are not saved, I pray that they would finally surrender to you and say, Jesus, you know my heart. And I ask that you would forgive me of all of my sins, all of my duplicity, all of my betrayal, all of my double-mindedness, all my greed and my idolatry and my theft. And forgive me for failing to fully go all in on faith. Oh Lord, once and for all, the game is over. Jesus, I surrender all right now. Save me, wash me, cleanse me. Let the truth be known that you've saved me and prepare a place for me in heaven. Forgive all of my sins, Jesus, that I might live without shame and give me the courage to tell people around me that it's finally, truly happened, no matter the consequences. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Search our hearts. Fill our church with your glory. And we pray this in your mighty name. Amen.